So I want to ask you this question. Uh, what is your favorite song? And if we were together, I would just pull uh, answers from you as a group. And um, it's interesting what makes our song our favorite song. For some of you, it would be simply the tune, the music. You love it. Uh, I suspect for many of you, it's because the content of the song, the lyrics, are also really meaningful and important to you. And what's fascinating about music is its ability to teach us and to help us learn. And, and actually, it's a wonderful way to remember things. That's why we use songs to teach children. <clears throat> and actually, you know, that's why we use songs in church. They're not only a way for us to express ourselves to God, but we actually learn about God and we learn about Jesus through what we sing because we remember that. And what you can do with songs that you can't always do with just um, proclamation is that you can actually draw people into complex ideas and concepts through the artistic expression of putting words to music. And that leads me to the passage that we just watched and heard in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, even though today we're going to cover down to verse 23, <clears throat> is that it is highly likely that these verses in 15 to 20 were a song that the early Christians used. In fact, it's possible that, that Paul himself developed this song, or Paul and Timothy, maybe they co-wrote this song about Jesus. And it's a song about the unrivaled Lord. And in this song, I want to draw out just a, a few words or concepts for us to, to pay attention to. And so the song's broken up into kind of two sections. There's verses 15 to 17, and then there's verses 18 to 20, and then verses 21 to 23. Um, the song is only 15 to 20, 21 to 23 are really just a follow-up from that. Last week we looked at the good news that Paul was writing about, the good news of Jesus. And this week, these verses we're looking at are describing what the good news is that he was talking about in the first 13 verses. And so he begins by saying, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. The God that we can't see, we actually can see in the person of Christ. And the word that he uses for image is, is where we get this word icon. And I've got here in my hand a, a quarter. And I'm not sure if maybe some of you have forgotten what quarters are because, or some of you young ones maybe don't even know what a quarter is because everybody just taps now. We just pay for everything electronically. However, this is a quarter. It is currency. It's legit. And it has a picture of Queen Elizabeth II on it. The picture is an icon of the queen. So it is meant to represent her. And here's Paul saying, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the icon of God. So when we want to see God, we look to Jesus. And Jesus himself said, if you want to see the Father or anyone who has seen the Father has seen him through me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in other places, um, the early Christian authors that were giving us the New Testament, one of them wrote that Jesus is the exact representation of God in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 
just um, the letter before this, the letter to the Philippians, Paul, Paul writes another hymn, and that hymn starts by, by telling us that Jesus, uh, who being in very nature God, who shares the same nature or essence of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know, in, in verse 15, Paul says he's the visible image. In verse uh, 19, Paul says, God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. If you jump over to chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So Jesus is the image of God, and he was present at creation. He was there. So in Genesis 1.1, when we read, in the beginning God created, Paul is explaining this for us in more detail by saying, well, actually, it was Christ who was, who was doing the work of creation. And then he talks about he created all things, that he is the firstborn over all creation. And we'll touch on that word in just a moment. But I want us to capture this idea that, that Jesus Christ that the early followers met and walked with and saw crucified and resurrected, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so everything that we need to understand about God, we see in Jesus. He, you know, in, as you just read through the scriptures, you begin to realize that, that when we talk about God, we experience him most completely in the person of Jesus. He is God, and you could unpack all the theological implications of that. He's the icon of God. But, but here's, I think, where, where it gets interesting is we are made in the image of God. Humanity is made in the image of God. <clears throat> and I think sometimes we might think that our humanness is patterned after Adam that we read about in Genesis 1. But if Christ is the image of God and Christ is preeminent or first among creation, and he was there creating all things. The Jesus that we know, that everything about God was present in Jesus, then, then that means that humanity is, is patterned after the one who created it. And therefore, you know, our, our humanity, um, where we share Adam's humanness, the prototype of that is not Adam, it's Jesus. And when we are invited uh, to follow Jesus, and when we actually turn to him, and we begin to receive the new life that he's giving to us, then I think we become more like Jesus, and thereby we become, in some ways, more human. And I'm still wrapping my head around that idea. I want to talk about another word here, and it's the word firstborn. So in this verse 15, Paul writes that Jesus is firstborn over all creation, or my translation says that he is supreme over all creation. And some people might read that and think, oh, God created Jesus first, and then Jesus was a part of the creating, the creating work. And, and often when this idea of firstborn is being used, it's not in a linear sense related to time. It's about rank, and it's about position, and it's about authority. So that's why, at least in this translation, it says that he is supreme over all creation. And Paul is really just taking a concept that people would have been familiar with, and that is, you know, 
the work of creation in Genesis 1, but then in the book of Proverbs, there's this idea in chapter 8 about wisdom being present at creation. And there's this influence of Hellenistic or Greek thought and Jewish thought being combined in people. And the readers uh, in this passage, you know, there were Jewish people and there were non-Jewish people immersed in Greek thought. And Paul is taking ideas from their world and helping them to, to make sense of it. And so he's saying, like, let me introduce you to a, a better understanding of what you've been thinking about as you read Proverbs chapter 8 of wisdom being present at creation. And that is, um, a better understanding of it is to, is to see all of it culminated in the person of Jesus, who was first in creation in the sense that he was there creating. And he was creating all things. And he goes on to say things in the heavenly realms and things on earth, things that we can't see, the things that we can see, thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. And he existed before anything else and he holds it all together. So Christ is Lord over all of creation because he was the one creating all of it. And that's this next word. Paul uses this phrase, everything or all things. And in one sense, as one scholar has put it, the universe is Christocentric. The universe is pointing us to the what and the why behind it. And the what and the why behind it is answered in a who. And that who is the person, the Christ, who was there creating it all. And then Paul, yeah, he, he very expressly, ex- explicitly uses this word, all things. The things that are in the heavenly realm and the things that are in the earthly realm. The things that we can see and the things that we can't see. And that includes powers and authorities and kingdoms and rulers. The ones that we can see in our world and then all the ones that we can't see that we may not even be aware of. And yet Paul is reminding his readers, even those powers that are at work that you're not even aware of, Jesus is Lord over them. He is the unrivaled Lord. He is first. He created it all. And all of it is held together in him. The universe is Christocentric. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be um, delving into the sciences to learn everything we can about the universe. But behind it all, Paul is wanting to introduce his readers to the one who is over it all, that it all came through him, it is all for him, and it is all by him. And even now, he is holding all of it together. He is the unrivaled Lord of creation. So that's verses 15 to 17. And then verse 18, you get the sense of Paul introducing a new concept. And it's, and I would just sum, summarize it in this. Not only is Jesus the unrivaled Lord of creation, he's the unrivaled Lord of the new creation. And the new creation involves the act of reconciliation. And there's, it's, not, it's not new news for us to understand that there are things in this universe and in our world that are broken. 
And it seems like um, at some point they were okay and then something happened. And we talk about that as the fall um, that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. But Christ was first in the old creation and Christ is first in the new creation. And so Paul begins verse 18 and in this new creation, the very first thing he does is introduces the church as a part of this new creation process. So he says, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme or the firstborn over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. There's that word, uh, those words, all things are everything again. And so Paul is saying, not only is Christ first in the old creation, but he is first in the new creation because it was the resurrection of the crucified Lord that was the culminating act of the new creation. That Jesus is first in the new creation because he began it all. And this time, the word firstborn isn't just about rank and authority, but it actually is used in a linear way. He was the first to rise from the dead. And then every other person who will rise from the dead is patterned after Jesus. And again, that just brings us back to the life that we have in him and becoming more and more like him and ultimately becoming more and more human, even in a new state. And Paul is walking us through here. He's introducing the concept of the church. Then he introduces the concept of resurrection. Then he introduces the concept of what we call incarnation, that God, in all of his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And then he comes to this word that I want to look at, reconciliation, that through Christ God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood, on the cross. And the idea of reconciliation um, includes being made new. So when Paul is stating explicitly here and in other places, it wasn't that God needed to be reconciled to us, but it's that all of creation needs to be reconciled back to God. So things went askew, and what God has done through Christ is brought things back, is to return them to himself. So the first creation didn't happen without Christ, and it's very clear here that the second creation, the act of creating a new people, does not happen without Christ. Scott McKnight, one scholar, has said that reconciliation is the finishing work of creation. It's to be brought back. It's to be restored it's this idea of, of move, being moved away and then being brought back into right relationship. And this idea of the reconciliation of all things, sometimes that becomes a lofty concept. And, and it's a word, we don't use that word a lot, but if you could just think about, about damaged relationship and the relationship being restored through the act of one party. That everything is on that one party. And, and Paul says that the reconciliation of everything happened through the means of Christ's blood on the cross. 
And I think it's important that we ground the idea of the new creation of reconciliation in the physical death, the execution of Jesus on the cross, so that we don't somehow get off into lofty ideals. You know, and when he uses this word, Christ's blood on the cross, a lot of times in the church, um, we hear, we talk about blood and we think automatically of the sacrificial system. And yet half the time in the Old Testament, when, when the term blood is used uh, in reference to people, it is actually used in relation to violence. The shedding of blood is an act of violence. You see, the cross is humanity's violent act on God in response to God's love for them. And God assumes all of that violence onto himself in the person of Christ. And then he triumphs over it. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks as we get into chapter 2. But let's not lose sight of the fact that our reconciliation happened through the violent act of humanity upon God. And his response to that violent act is to draw us back into relationship through the very death of Christ and then to establish peace with all of creation. And there's that word, all things again. All things and if all things are reconciled to God, then that means that all of those things that are reconciled to God are also reconciled to one another. And so the other, the other way of understanding this idea of reconciliation of all things is we tend to think individualistically. So we read a passage like this and we think, well, I've been reconciled to God and he's been reconciled to God and she's been reconciled to God. But reconciliation is about things being reconciled to each other. The new creation includes the new people of God, the church, which is why Paul introduces this whole section by talking about the church, because Jesus is inviting us into the act of reconciliation through the way that we live out what it means to be that new people for the world. And so when he's writing to these people who are predominantly non-Jewish, in verse 21, he says, this reconciliation of all things includes you. And there's this sense that God is bringing you into his family as Israel was already kind of considered the family of God through whom God wanted to bring peace in this world. Now you are invited into that family. It's the bringing together of people. So if you read the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote, he talks about Christ through his death on the cross, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between people. Not only are we reconciled to God together, but we are reconciled to one another. All things are reconciled, which means that they're reconciled to God and to each other. We are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to each other, and in essence, we are reconciled to creation itself. All things are reconciled. Jesus is the unrivaled Lord of creation, but he is the unrivaled Lord of the new creation because of his work of reconciliation. Lots of big words, but it's exciting and it's, uh, it's fascinating to consider all the implications of that, that the reconciliation is the finishing work of creation. So let me read for you 
what one scholar said, I've referenced him already, Scott McKnight. He says, here we come face to face with the gospel itself, the good news, which is more than a message of salvation. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived, who died, and who has risen to the right hand of the Father, is the world's true Lord and King. The gospel announces that Jesus is first, or protuon. That's the same variant of prototokos. You know, the, this hymn about Jesus, it's a celebration of Christ's work in creation, but the climax of it is the new people by means of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so I, uh, I just think, what a wonderful way to express who Jesus is through song that he's the unrivaled Lord of creation and the new creation. And so when we worship Jesus as the unrivaled Lord, not only is that giving us the focus of our worship, but it's actually guiding us into what our mission is as his people. Remember in verse 18 that the church is, the church is introduced at the very beginning of this act of the new creation. And it's a recognition that when we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, it means that nothing else can be. If Jesus is Lord, he's the unrivaled Lord. Nothing else is in his place. And therefore, when we acknowledge him as Lord, we're worshiping him in that way. But now that's leading us into our mission, which is to bring that good news to the rest of the world. Jesus is Lord of creation, both of them. And we get to be a part of uh, pointing people to, to the God that they're looking for, which we will discover in the person of Jesus. And I pray and trust that that's an encouraging word for you today. I'm going to invite you to pray with me now. Um, I invite you to pray with me because I, I realize that uh, in times like this, we need a reminder that Jesus is Lord. We have a, a number of people in our, in our New Life family that are, that are hurting and struggling um, with all kinds of physical problems and relational problems and, uh, and employment problems. And I think this is a good word for us today that in the midst of it all, to hold on to the reality that Jesus is Lord over all things and all the powers that we feel helpless against, he is Lord over those. So let's pray. Jesus, you are the visible image of the invisible God. You are first in all of creation. You are first in the new creation through your resurrection. And through the, through the cross, you are reconciling all things to yourself. And as Paul encouraged those early readers to hold on to this faith, to be faithful in in holding on to you and trusting you as the unrivaled Lord, may we be able to live the same way in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of pain, uh, in the midst of great trials. 
Allow us to remember that you are Lord. I pray that this song that the early Christians sang would become a song for us to sing, to be reminded that you are the unrivaled Lord of all creation, of the new creation of your people. For those who are hurting, may they find uh, relief in the reality that Jesus is Lord. For those that are scared, may they find courage in the reality that Jesus is Lord. For those who are lost, may they find light and, and hope in being found because Jesus is Lord. For those who are broken, may they find healing in the truth that Jesus is Lord. For those without purpose, may they discover their mission in declaring the good news that Jesus is Lord and that if He is Lord, nothing else and no one else can be. That is what we declare today. That is what we sing as your people with grateful hearts and with anticipation of good things to come. Amen. Thanks for joining us today and uh, wishing you all the best this coming week and uh, continue to read ahead uh, from the end of chapter one into chapter two as we look at the next, uh, the next passage for next week. We'll see you next Sunday.